Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome to Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Storer. Our guest today is Ewan Roger, a medieval and Tudor historian, and also the principal record specialist with the National Archives. He's here to talk about the dissolution of the monasteries. Hi, Ewan. Welcome. Hi. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. Well, this is a pretty well-known topic, but before we start, just in case, why don't you start us off by explaining maybe the lead up to the dissolution and then kind of what the dissolution of the monasteries actually was and what it looked like at the time. Of course. Yeah. So this all comes as part of the English Reformation um, when obviously Henry VIII declares himself supreme head of the church in England. Um, and that kind of sets in in progress a whole load of changes, uh, which ultimately lead to the end of the monastic system um, in England and Wales and, and in Ireland, but Ireland is slightly different. Um, so in terms of a kind of broad overview timeline, uh, so in 1534 is when Henry is declared supreme head of the Church of England, uh, or Church in England. Um, and around that same time as well, he also um, is quite uh, keen to divert ecclesiastical taxation that would have gone to the Roman Church originally. Um, so he's, he's taking on board the, that taxation. Um, and then between 1534, 35 and 1539-1540 is when the dissolution of the monasteries takes place. And this is essentially um, Henry taking Henry and his ministers taking apart the monastic system that has been in place in England since um, the Anglo-Saxon period. A lot of these houses, these religious institutions have been in England for a long, long time. And this is essentially taking them apart. Um, and stripping them of their wealth and their lands. Um, and it's a huge transformation, I think, in the English system at this point. Um, and it took, yeah, as I say, over the course of about five years, the entire structure of the English church is fundamentally transformed. So during this time, our friend Techno asks, is it true that Cromwell was actually lining his own pockets during the dissolution? I suspect he probably was, although it's always really tricky to try and pick out evidence of this sort of thing from within the records. So the records that we hold at the National Archives and also in places like the British Library, um, can they're, they're the records of the state. Um, and in some instances, we have Cromwell's own records because he was later um, accused of treason and, and so on. So we have this kind of mis mishmash of records from the state and from Cromwell's own archive. And it's quite difficult to sometimes try and piece together what's actually happening. Um, but we do have, as I say, some of this loads of correspondence, really, between Cromwell and his agents who are doing the kind of practical bits of this. 
which give us hints about his actions, but trying to get into the man's own mind is quite difficult. Um, it's clear from the correspondence he's not afraid to challenge people or to menace those he disagrees with. And we do have some evidence of him taking bribes is possibly a very strong word here, bribes or gifts. Um, so there's one really clear bribe, uh, which is in 1532 with the election of the abbot of, um, and I'm always careful to try and pronounce this correctly because English place names can be so difficult. Uh, but the abbot of Mulchelney Abbey in Somerset, uh, we do have evidence of Cromwell taking quite an explicit bribe in this case. Now, this is before the dissolution has really kicked off, um, but it's evidence of him interfering in the church's business in this way. Uh, so what happens in Somerset is the abbot had stood down and a new candidate was being put forward, seemingly at Cromwell's own request. But the candidate put forward was seen by many at the abbey to be too young and too um, inexperienced. So he um, he's accused of being under the required age canonically, uh, which is the age of 25. Um, and there's a lot of seemingly elder monks within the community pushing back against this decision. Um, and we have the new abbot being elected eventually. Um, they've gone through this whole process of confirming that he was 25 rather than 24. Um, and he was, he was very learned and all sorts. But at the point he's elected, we find out that Cromwell and his agent on the ground had both been promised a fee to secure this election. Uh, which the new abbot had to pay twice because the agent dies before he can pass the fee on to Cromwell. But this is an explicit bribe. Um, and Durbin McCulloch, obviously, is the kind of the chief biographer of Cromwell. His kind of take on this is that this isn't regular for Cromwell. But what we see in Cromwell's later career is a willingness to take, to, to accept gifts, to accept gifts in term um, and reward them with patronage and that kind of thing. So... I think we do see Cromwell lining his own pockets along the way. Now, now part of this is about how the medieval and Tudor patronage systems work. So in order to secure appointments by letters patent, for example, you have to pay various fees along the way for each step of the process. And of course, the process of investigating the new abbot's age would have cost money. But there was a lot to be gained, I think, in terms of these gifts and grants to secure patronage with someone like Cromwell. And you see him taking on all of these um, these kind of jobs or um, roles within religious communities where they're essentially paying him for his good judgment, his good patronage. Um, and of course, the more he can ingratiate himself with Henry VIII, the more he stands to benefit in any case. Thankfully, nobody had questions about that abbey that you just mentioned. So we don't have to worry about trying to say that again. <laughs> pronounce that again. Um, anyway, so I think, okay, so then we're clear on Cromwell's kind of ambition um, and the fact that he probably was interested in getting some more money through everything. So Nancy Buchanan actually brings up a good question. And this is another one that you're not going to be able to necessarily answer with certainty. But whose idea do you think it really was? Do you think that it really was Henry's or was it maybe Cromwell's or just kind of a mixture of both? So this is the big question, really, around the dissolution. Who is the driving force behind it? Now. Obviously, Cromwell clearly couldn't have gone ahead without Henry's consent. That's unthinkable. But at the same time, he's right at the centre of events throughout, either himself or working through various agents. And I think it is important to note that this isn't an unprecedented event. 
Um, it's it's unprecedented in terms of its scale, but actually um, Thomas Wolsey, Cromwell's previous mentor, had undertaken a small dissolution during the 1520s in order to support his new foundations at, um, at Oxbridge and uh, in Ipswich. And previous monarchs had suppressed um, alien priories who owed allegiance to mother houses in, say, France. So this isn't completely new. And actually, what we're looking at, I think, originally kind of makes sense to Henry. So the initial plan is that there's a limited dissolution of smaller houses, those um, with incomes of under £200. And this this kind of fits within the wider sense of uh, a desire for religious reform at this period. So in terms of Henry's approach to this, I think that initial limited dissolution makes a huge amount of sense. He's looking to to move the personnel of small houses into larger houses and consolidate them. That makes sense. The way it plays out, though, in the end, I think is down to Cromwell um, through the commissioners he appoints and the way he approaches the issue. And I think this is particularly the case when you look at the visitation of monasteries and uh, the documents they produce called the Compendium Compatorum, which is essentially a large scale visitation of all the bad things that are going on in monasteries, but also the good things. Uh, but primarily the bad things. And again, this isn't a new idea. The visitation of religious houses by um, religious superiors, uh, whether that's a bishop or uh, a lower scale, to assess wrongdoing and enforce changes was long established by this point. And we know from these earlier accounts that these visitations often picked up rumours, personal disputes, exaggerations among actual institutional concerns. And by the extent of Cromwell and his agents' visitation and the strong focus on superstition, in quotes, alongside accusations of what they term incontinence and sodomy, although sodomy here is not quite what we think about in a modern um, term, um, as well as immoral behaviour, the records that they produce in 1535 really strike me as Cromwell trying to get evidence as a means for providing ammunition for charges, for changes further down the line. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So although it wasn't necessarily unprecedented, do you think that when the Reformation started, Henry had any regrets about his decision or was he strictly concerned with the prophets? And thank you again to our friend Katie Ray for that question. So this is really, really interesting. Does he mean to go as far as he ends up going? And this is one of the most difficult things to really judge from the records. Because, of course, we're viewing events after the fact and with the benefit of hindsight. Um, so the big question here, I think, is was what took place in the 1530s part of a master plan, either by Henry or Cromwell? And how much of it is reactive as things unfold? Um, and my instinct is towards the reactive side of things, uh, but it's very hard to say. Um, so one interesting thing here, particularly about these misgivings, is that when the smaller houses, um, these under 20, £200 of income, are dissolved in around 1535, 
Henry retains the option to exempt houses at his own discretion. And of, I think they um, identify, identify about 419 houses for dissolution. Around about 170 of those are exempted. So at this stage, we are still within that possibility. This is intended as limited religious reform in response to both public concerns and as a consequence of his decision to become the supreme head of the church, rather than widespread dissolution. Um, and I think it's interesting. I tend to think of this as uh, akin to a new CEO or chief official being appointed to a large organization. So Henry's become the supreme head of the church, and he's now looking to restructure and put emphasis on his own priorities and ways of working and so on. But then as we go through the process and we get reaction and counter reaction, things to me seem to really escalate with events such as the Pilgrimage of Grace, really stirring up public uh, discontent and provoking Henry to react or Cromwell to react um, to those events. And by the time of the, the kind of the latter voluntary suppressions, again in quotes, we're looking at a very different picture. So where any sense of restraint or regret is out the window. So in the case of Furness Abbey, for example, a large and wealthy house which found itself caught up in this rebellion, the abbot seems to have been essentially coerced into voluntarily surrendering his house in April 1537, a model which presented a handy precedent for those seeking further dissolution, although whether or not that's planned at this stage isn't clear. So I think Henry initially has this kind of potentially this limited um, reformation, dissolution, reform in mind, and things escalate. And one interesting moment in particular is in March 1538, when Cromwell explicitly issues a letter, essentially denying that widespread dissolution is not royal policy. Um, and there are several instances where houses are refounded or merged, but the 13, 1538 letter seems more likely to have been an attempt to stop monastic communities from selling off land and goods before they could be seized. So we're really in kind of enforcement territory, no leeway at this point. And we know that this process of selling off lands and goods takes place at several institutions. So at Chertsey Abbey, for example, which is uh, an institution I've studied quite a bit, it was recorded that the abbot had sold wood and is bargaining away Chobham Park, has conveyed away the plate um, and has given away the portership as well. So Chertsey Abbey is quite interested in, in that it had surrendered to the crown in July 1537 in anticipation that they would be refounded at Bisson Abbey near Marlow, which is a former house that had been itself dissolved in July 1537. And the new, new foundation was to pray for Henry VIII and his late wife, Jane Seymour, and was to be quite prestigious. The abbot was even permitted to wear the mitre of a bishop. Yet we do find um, the abbot trying to maximise his own income already. So they move um, to this new site in December 1537, um, but there, it's reported that the abbot has sold everything that the abbey owns in London, and doubtless within a year would have sold the house and lands, um, basically for wine, sugar, burridge leaves and sec, whereof he sips nightly in his chambers till midnight, um, while the monks themselves had to uh, set up a market to sell their cows. So on one hand, we have this kind of lenient Henry at the beginning of the process, I think, and then things just escalate. So the initial dissolution sparks tension, rebellion, that in turn then sparks larger abbeys and houses and um, voluntary, in quotes, um, suppre um, accepting suppression. 
And then in return, in response to that, we have communities trying to sell their goods and chattels so that they they can make money before things are confiscated. Um, and that, again, then makes the Quran respond in a, in a more a more fervent way. So I think, for me, this is very much a process of escalation, which wasn't necessarily intended at the start. Now, are you able to gauge approximately how much he actually made out of doing this with the monasteries? Doug Breeden was wondering if you could talk about either maybe how much was was uh, profited in total or how much just Henry VIII was able to get his hands on or kind of what the outcome looked like for him. This is a really difficult question because essentially money's being brought in from all different places. Um, and so it's very hard to say the, the total sum. I think what we can say is that this is very important to the crown, this income. So the religious houses have been one of the major landholding institutions in the country. So, of course, the crown gains this land when institutions su surrender, but they also gain the ability to collect these taxes, which are formally paid to Rome. Um, and we can see the, the importance of these uh, income streams from the document known as the Valor Ecclesiasticus. This is the, the survey of ecclesiastical property, which takes place in 1535 around about the same time as these visitations are taking place. And this is a massive survey of what the church in England holds. So you can see it's important to the crown. Now, there are two different types of income streams here that I think are important. So land in particular was useful because it could be leased or sold to provide the crown with either a regular or a one-off payment, depending who it's leased or sold. But it's also really important as a means of patronage. So this is particularly important because so medieval crown patronage relies on being able to hand out lands and titles to the chosen few, to the ones you want to um, support. Um, but there's obviously only a limited amount of land within the crown's hands it can give out. And so once you've given out all of your, your patronage, a king can often find themselves faced with the prospect of having to remove patronage from one individual in order to reward another. So when you have, for example, civil war, that's quite an easy way that you can do this because you can attain people and seize their lands if they've been uh, treasonous or, or whatever. But if that's not the case, it's quite difficult to find new patronage to reward other people. So what happens with, with the dissolution is it provides Henry with a huge amount of um, currency, I guess, in, in the broader sense of terms, to work with. So he's got now lands that he can grant people who he wants to favour. Um, although initially, the, the main policy was to lease lands rather than selling them. And by the end of Henry's reign, probably about half of the seized lands had been sold, often at fixed prices, uh, according to their income previously. So we have land and taxation on one side. But of course, alongside land and taxes, the church was a major owner of valuable goods, both in terms of precious metals, crosses, reliquaries, hosting holy relics, and so on, which, are, which adorned their altars. And they're also a big supply of building supplies because the, they're made of large, um, nice stone often. So when monasteries were dissolved, you find in most instances, you have the lead being stripped from the roof and melted down to ingots. Um, while other supplies such as bells and stones could also be taken. So 
in many cases, this didn't amount to a full destruction of the church. But at Chertsey, which I spoke about earlier, for example, we have these detailed accounts as the abbey was torn down and some of the stones were used for Henry's new building project, Oatlands Palace. So they include, include various people from the town of Chertsey. Um, and a quote here, serving for to let down the small stones at the pinnacle of the steeple, price per piece, two pence. And you even have the local vicar delivering straw um, for this stone to be laid down onto for breaking up. So we've got these two very different forms of income. Um, and because obviously each church is providing a certain amount of lead or stone or um, gold and silver or lands, depending on its size and influence, um, it's, it's quite piecemeal. It's quite hard to actually patch together how much this is. Um, but it's a huge sum of money. And we do need to bear in mind as well that money doesn't just come in. So um, all the former residents of religious houses get pensions. So you have got associated outgoing costs there. You've got costs related to, for example, the cathedral churches. There's outgoings as well as incomings. So it's quite difficult to get to a final sum. And of course, that changes from year to year. There is um, an attempt by Mary I to um, to refound and restore some of these houses, particularly around London. Mary, of course, being a Roman Catholic. Um, but by that time, I think it's, Henry does a really good job in breaking down um, this system. And I think it's easier to tear down a structure than it is to rebuild it. Um, and particularly with the solution of the monasteries, because it's all these different houses, it's a very complex administrative process, which requires an entirely new court called the Court of Augmentations to administer um, both the process of this and the disputes that follow over former monastic lands. And um, so it's kind of one of these things where you've broken the system down and actually to restore it would have been very difficult entirely. That's so interesting. Thank you. Because I don't, I don't think that a lot of our listeners or even I can have thought about things that way with all the different ways to, um, you know, profit or handle the situation after the dissolution. So thank you. Um, our next few questions coming up are more about the aftermath and kind of the effects on the citizens rather than necessarily what Henry stood to gain. So first of all, Debbie Davenport asks us, how did the dissolution affect the social structures of England? And how did how long did it take for society to recover from those changes? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, don't, I don't think anyone would dispute the dissolution is a hugely disruptive moment in English history, where you have these vast communities of individuals suddenly displaced from their former roles, their identities, and their status. Um, and at the archives, we hold the original deeds of surrender for these houses, and individuals signed in their own hands, literally signing away their old lives. Um, I do find them really poignant documents, um, particularly for some of the smaller places where you have these kind of potentially low-status people who are literally signing their lives away. Now, the post-dissolution lives of these men and women varied. Some men, in particular, were able to transition into new lives as chantry priests or within existing parish structures, but others had more trouble finding work um, and really did struggle. And particularly women who had been nuns seemed to have struggled as they were still unable to marry even after they'd been released from the rest of their vows. And many of them would have had to return to the support of their families 
whether they wanted to or not. Um, so it's quite an interesting dynamic there. And despite uh, Mary I's attempts to restore dissolved houses, we still find former monastic individuals drawing pensions in the early years of the Stuarts. So this is not a quick process. You are, you're seeing these kind of um, groups in society trying to find a new role for themselves. But alongside this, we also have wider social changes related to the property and lands that come from the dissolution. So for the kind of wider gentry in particular, the aftermath of the dissolution allowed the opportunity to further entrench themselves in certain areas through the purchase of former monastic lands. And they'd often look to try and enclose common lands in the same area at the same time. So in a way, it opens up the opportunity for a new landed gentry class to develop local connections and property holdings, which had previously been the preserve of the nobility. And this is something that has been debated um, at length about the Tudors, whether um, Henry VIII's reign sees a decline in the nobility and the rise of the gentry or, or vice versa. Um, but I think what we can see as well is a sense of um, history amongst this group. So many of the individuals look to use former monastic buildings in their grand new houses and gardens. And many of these obviously still survive today. Danny Burton was wondering how much were the poor actually affected by this? So in other words, um, health and welfare were offered by the monasteries when they existed. So were there other places that the poor could access those things after they closed? So there's, there's a couple of factors here on the subject of health in particular. So hospitals at this time, of course, were not the same type of institution that they are today. You don't have A&E wards, for example. They were religious houses where much of the care was spiritual rather than medical in nature. And of course, these houses were often dissolved as well, although there were some exceptions, such as St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, uh, which was partially exempted, although put in a very precarious position with the loss of much of its income and was later purchased by the City of London and refounded. So there is certainly a loss of health and chari charitable provision with the dissolution, or at least a sense of precarity, if not. For the poor, more generally, um, as, as Danny said in her question, monasteries provided charitable almsgiving alongside the provision of hospitality. So the dissolution removed this source of charity entirely. And we do see continued concerns about beggars and the poor throughout the 16th century in the wake of the dissolution, although the extent of this has been debated. As well as arms, though, on a slightly different note, I don't think we can leave out the importance of things like pilgrimage and holy relics for spiritual health in society in general. So relics and what Cromwell's commissioners called superstitions, in brackets, um, were a particular target in the comperta or reports that were sent back after monasteries were visited. So the use of holy relics to cure disease or injuries, ensure a safe childbirth, or bring up another positive outcome. Uh, my favourite one is a pilgrim who visits Henry VI shrine at Windsor to cure a football injury. They may have been seen as a trick to fool more naive members of society into giving religious houses their money. And indeed, this is the case at many institutions, and this is what um, Cromwell and his commissioners are highlighting in their accounts. Um, and we, yeah, so we do know that there are, is potentially some trickery in place. So my own research into Chertsey suggests that the monks there may have unscrupulously attempted to hijack one of Henry VI's arm bones, which had become a popular source of pilgrimage 
uh, when his body is removed to his new home in Windsor. And at Hales Abbey, the relic of Christ's blood was revealed at the dissolution to be nothing more than wax or honey dyed with saffron. And um, the accounts say that the local people were furious at being lied to about this. But, and this is a very difficult question because it comes into much broader conversations about faith um, and belief. If you believe in these items, so there are items in particular associated with childbirth. If you believe in these items and they provide comfort at a difficult time, then that support has been fundamentally lost after the dissolution. Um, so I do think we have to think about it in not just medical or health related support that we would appreciate today, but also these people believed in these things. And you're just removing that without any warning, without any anything to replace it necessarily. Um, so it's a very complicated issue. Um, and I could talk about relics for hours because they fascinate me. So at Chertsey, for example, they have the arm bone, which is the Henry VI arm bone, I think. And they drink wine through it in case of illness. Um, and they also have an image on the wall, which they place candles in, in front of on behalf of sick people. And if the candle stays lit, um, the sick person will recover. But if it goes out, they will die. Um, and I just think we have to be aware of the people who are interacting with these. If that candle's gone, what do you do? What do you think about that person's chances? Um, so it's very complicated. Um, and I think we should remember that other forms of care for the needy society did remain. These weren't the only forms. So arms giving at collegiate churches sticks around for a while. Civic measures uh, obviously carry on throughout this process. Um, but I do think the loss of the monasteries would have had a major impact on the needy in society, particularly at a local level. I could listen to those little anecdotes and stuff all day about you know the candles <laughs> and things like that. It's so interesting. But we'll move on. So our last question comes from D. Withers. How did education suffer, or if maybe if, if it didn't suffer, how was it affected at all um, from the closure of the monasteries? Yeah, so education is fascinating. Um, monasteries were an important source of education, and they often contained schools or other forms of education for young children in particular. But they aren't the only source of education available outside of the kind of traditional Oxbridge colleges, uh, which are quite well known. So we've got, for example, Eton College and Winchester are quite obvious examples. And as the name of Eton suggests, collegiate foundations were at this point one of the more popular means of providing educational institutions. And actually, education is right at the forefront of what people wanted from their religious houses at this time. So when Wolsey undertook his initial round of dissolutions a decade before the events of the 1530s, this was primarily with the aim of creating new educational collegiate institutions at Oxbridge, but also in Ipswich. And of course, the refounded cathedral churches are also able to provide forms of education, um, while other in institutions, such as the Inns of Court, for example, could provide a different form of education for um, legal-minded individuals. So I think perhaps we're seeing a redistribution of education rather than a loss, and one which is actually quite in tune with public feeling at the time. Well, thank you so much for answering all of our questions about the dissolution of the monasteries. I think that if uh, anybody has any more questions, because I know that this topic is so wide ranging, we could keep going on and on. But so if anybody else wanted to get in touch with you 
and talk about this or ask you about anything else, uh, how can we find you on social media? Yep. So my Twitter handle is at you and Roger. Um, so yeah, feel free to contact me on there um, or just to follow my, my regular musings on medieval and Tudor history. We would love to. And now there's one more thing that I, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to talk about before we let you go. I know that you have a big talk that's coming up that people can sign up for that we can listen. Can you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, I'm giving a talk at Windsor Castle on the 6th of October about um, St. George's Chapel and College within the castle, um, essentially from the kind of late 15th century right up to the, the break with Rome almost. Um, so your people, are, listeners are very welcome to join either in person or it's going to be broadcast via Zoom. And you can find details about that on my social media, but also on the St. George's College Archives website. Well, thanks again for joining us, Ewan. And uh, we've loved having you and we hope to talk to you again. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 